This is 15 Minutes of Freedom. I'm your host, Ryan Idell, and today coming to us live from Connecticut, cold, miserable Connecticut, right? We're Midwesterners. <laughs> I have Kelly Lynch. Kelly, pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. It's awesome to be here. Now, I like to start with a question to bring the listeners in, right? Because it's getting to know you is all well and good and all your accolades. We're going to get to that. But you're like a multifaceted business owner. Right, you have a, a practice as well as a coaching business and some different pieces and parts in between. So, if someone was thinking about jumping into that entrepreneurial space, right, whether it be a coach, whether it's going to school to become a therapist, what's a lesson that you think every, I'll say, budding entrepreneur should be able to have in their repertoire and their tool belt? Patience. <laughs> Patience. I'm in trouble because I still don't have that, Kelly. <laughs> You know, I, I think that, you know, if you're looking to get into the business world, one of the biggest things that anybody should be prepared for is to play the long game and to really understand what that looks like and just be prepared for the patience that it, it takes to just sit in the middle of that and how uncomfortable it can be at times because it's a roller coaster, uh, but to really just enjoy the ride while you're going up and down on it. I, that, is a, that is a very well-stated synopsis of what entrepreneurism really is, is that roller coaster ride. Yep. But, right, your life, as much as all of ours have, but I think yours is an extreme case of what you've been through, you've had a roller coaster of relationships and triumph and rebuilding and um, just all the stuff that's you. I would love to go on the, I'll call that Reader's Digest version of the story with you of, right, married, and then some things right, didn't go quite the right way as, as we would, or maybe they went exactly they're supposed to, right? I, I, it's, there's always two ways to look at it. Kyle, I'd love for you to share some of your story with us. Sure. So I actually became, I'll start with that I became a certified EMT in 2002. And I was working for a commercial ambulance service when I met my now ex-husband. Um, we were together for just shy of 10 years. Uh, and I ended up, we, we had a daughter together. Uh, she will be seven in February. And I ended up leaving him because of domestic violence. Um, in the process of our relationship, you know, I did the whole school thing. I did the homeownership thing with him and really learned what it was to be or what it is to be an adult and we, in a lot of ways grew up together and but then just grew apart in a pretty explosive way um so i left in october of 2014 after some pretty scary incidents uh and the last five years have been all about just rebuilding and figuring out what it looks like to to be a mom on my own um, and managing my businesses, just living a good life. Which I love to hear that. And right, I'm personally curious, when we talk domestic violence, right, I, I instantly go to an alcohol-induced, rage-filled, sure. you know, smashing things and breaking things and being physically abusive. But yep. in preparation for our conversation, I started doing a little more research, which is why, selfishly, I love these conversations. It forces me to become more educated. Mm-hmm. That's just not necessarily, and I don't want to take it away that that's not your story. I don't know if it is or not, but domestic abuse, domestic violence has a, a multitude of different layers to it, right? It doesn't have to be smashing a, a glass bottle over your head by any means. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what, what you described is the end of my story. 
um, but it, it definitely was not the beginning or the middle. So for domestic violence can occur and, and marital abuse or any sort of relationship abuse for that matter can occur across financial topics. It can occur sexually, it can occur mentally and emotionally, and then obviously also physically. Um, so for me, it began with financial issues where um, I was very, very pressured to pay certain bills for him. Uh, he would run up credit cards to the tune of multiple thousands, um, sometimes five figures worth of credit card debt. And there was no way out unless I would go and ask my parents for help. Um, and that happened multiple times. I was always told by him, you know, that there's, there's always going to be money. They print more every day, things like that. And it, it was just so manipulative. And the, I mean, obviously the red flags were there and some of them, 2020 hindsight. Now I can look at it and say, okay, I could see it. And then there were others that I just chose to look past. And that's, that's often something that a lot of women and men coming out of violent relationships will say that, you know, I saw these things and I wanted to see the best in this person, or I wanted to look past it because I was so hopeful that we could fix things. So once, once the financial piece had begun, uh, that eventually escalated to where I was not allowed access to the checkbooks. I didn't know what was in our bank accounts. I was told, you know, spend certain amounts, uh, given budgets that I had to live off of. Uh, and it was controlling and isolating. And that's, that's really the biggest thing with domestic violence, that it begins very slowly and often very subtly. And the purpose of it is to control and isolate whoever is on the receiving end of the, of the abuse. Um, once that that had escalated enough, at that point, then uh, sexual issues began where there was inappropriate touching and I would consistently set boundaries and say, I, do, I don't want to be touched like that. It doesn't feel good. It's not welcome. I don't appreciate it. Uh, and I would be told, well, you're my wife. I can do what I want. So there was a lot of objectification and a lot of disregard of that boundary setting. Uh, eventually, things did start to get broken around the house. He would go into rages and throw, throw cups, glasses. There were wine glasses that got broken. You know, and it was, it, it was just a constant, I needed, I, I felt like it was my responsibility to keep things constantly calm and cool in the house so that we would have a stable home environment. Uh, but it, it was, it was difficult at best. Like that's, that's a easy, nice way to put it, mm -hmm. that managing the home felt incredibly overwhelming. And I felt like I had to constantly be compliant in order to just be safe and feel like I could be healthy. Um, so. Well, and what I find to be, I don't know about fascinating is the right word, probably more sad is the research that I was able to do, right? And I'm by no means an expert. I want to make sure that I claim that up front, that this is nothing more than quick internet research, but that it looks as though somewhere between either one and eight and all the way to one in 20 women will experience some level of domestic abuse, uh, things in which you're describing. Mm -hmm. And we start looking at it to me as men, and not all, of course, right? It's easy to say we can do better, right? Like, sure. of course, that's like what you're supposed to say. 
but you really look at it and, and I believe we haven't been taught healthy emotional processing, right? Like mm-hmm. we're mirroring behavior that was passed down generationally. So, and of course, right. I'm a 35 year old man. So my mother, I'll say, quote unquote, raised me for the most part, right? Stay at home mom and dad was out working. And you see this domino effect now that's catching up kind of in a, I'll, I'll, without being too presumptuous, I'll say our generation, right? I feel like we're, we should be loosely close to the same age group. Hopefully. We are. <laughs> And to, to see this and to see that right whether it's on the aggressive side of one to eight or on the far side of one to 20, either way, that's, it's like this unspoken of thing that's existing in so many households everywhere. And then it right from the personal development work and right, psychology and things I'm interested in, seeing how men then sedate themselves, right? Because they know it's not right. And so whether it's pornography or alcohol or drugs, like the, the outlets aren't there. And Right. You have um, many different ways to help people cope with this, right? You, which I'm fascinated about between therapy and between a coaching business. So you get to see both sides of this. Yeah. How, how close am I, right? When I'm saying these things and right, the, the way my mind works is engineered by, by right, study. So everything mm-hmm. to me has its own box and its own compartment, but I'm sure you're professional. Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you're dead on right. You know, that we, and I would say, as much as much as the the perspective that you're offering around it, you know men in our society today their women are not innocent in this either there are just as many men going through violent relationships and because of, of this idea of what it is to be a man and and that men have to be strong men don't report as often as women do but there are just as many men who are in violent relationships and are being taken advantage of. So this is true on both sides. And we need to have that conversation for for men just as much as we need to have that conversation for women as well. So, but yes, we, we have been taught how to sedate ourselves and to not cope with emotions in healthy, appropriate ways, you know, by being able to communicate about it and to understand what it is to cope with, with things that make us uncomfortable or to even understand what it is to tolerate discomfort. You know, there, there are hard conversations that we've been avoiding for way too long. Well, and Kelly, I, did, I don't know if you're allowed to share things like this, right? But I'll say from the coaching hat, maybe not from the therapy hat, right? If, if there were exercises or things that you could recommend for someone to be able to, whether to check in on their emotional processing power, whether to have an exercise or two to understand like, hey, there's some healthy ways to get stuff out that you don't have to suppress it. What would you recommend for somebody? Movement would be the very first thing of just being able to understand how, how much physical energy our emotions actually ask for, right? Like I I talk about anger a lot with my therapy clients in particular and how anger isn't necessarily a bad thing, but we have to understand what are we going to do with the energy that anger asks for? Are we going to use it as a tool to be constructive and build and create something versus are we going to allow it to have just this destructive energy? You know, and that's, that's where we end up running into problems. When we, when we don't understand the energy that emotions ask for, we, we become destructive with it. Which makes perfect sense, right? I've, I've done maybe more research in this healthy, I don't know, into what I refer to as shadow integration, right? Because I look at as a child, I was taught basically to stand in line and don't speak up. And right, if you feel things to really 
bottle them in. And so mm -hmm. I was so adverse to conflict, right? Kelly, my entire story, my Reader's Digest version is, right, just so adverse to conflict that I would stay in relationships and keep adding new relationships. I didn't want to sit down with somebody and say, look, this has been a great ride, but it's not the ride's got to come to an end. I would just like push and right, manipulate and, and move through things, gosh, all the way from 20 until 30, right? My entire 20s were spent just running from any sort of conflict whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Started being forced to look into this. Forced when my wife sat me down one day before she was my wife, right? And said, like, you're just, you're better than this. You're capable of more. And some just clicked where she didn't yell and she didn't scream, which had been the default mechanism from my upbringing was that was how things were kind of handled. Yep. And then looking at like, wow, this is like, I feel like I'm on this island when I'm thinking these things like this can't be. It feels like a cow pile. Like I'm just excusing my behavior. But really during those developmental years in childhood, I was missing some of the pieces or I didn't, I didn't receive some of the pieces that I needed, even if right, nobody else needed them, I needed them. Not that my parents were good or bad. They just right, made the best they could of what they had. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the adulthood side of things. And it's like, wow, there's a whole series of, of coursework based around just this, this idea, just the fact of like, I am not the only person that thinks they're a little crazy sometimes with, why can't I get mad? Like it's unhealthy to get mad. I get a, a carnal response and a physical, like my palms sweat if I get angry and it's, yeah, I yeah. retreat. It's that's a real thing, right? Like I'm not, I'm not losing my mind. No, absolutely. And that's, that's what I mean when, when I say that, you know, our emotions have a physical energy and that asks to be expressed. And if we don't express it, we're setting ourselves up either for failure or, or other kinds of problems. So one of the biggest things that I always talk about, whether it's with my therapy clients or with my coaching clients is what are you doing to take care of your body? What are you doing to feed yourself well? So that it, you know your, your body chemistry is is where we need it to be in order to be healthy physically and mentally. And what are you doing to take care of your emotions? So a lot of what that looks like is you know daily movement, proper nutrition in appropriate amounts, and really thinking about you know how are we talking about emotions and are we even having those conversations? You know, a lot of my clients will journal on a daily basis just to just to talk it out like even if they don't have somebody that they can actually converse with journaling is a great way to be able to have a conversation without actually having a conversation you know i have other clients that you know will um do puzzles just to be able to settle themselves down to give themselves some one simple thing to focus on you know people talk about hobbies you know, I have that conversation with clients very often of just what are you doing to just create some happiness? Which, which is so interesting because that's, if, if I look at the components of my life, that's still the part that I personally struggle with Kelly is like, where, where do I derive my happiness from? Because went through this recalibration personally, where money is not the, the driver of happiness for me. And not that, right. I'm, I'm not independently wealthy. I'm not a multimillionaire by any means, but it's, yeah, I've had some stuff. I've lost some stuff. I've regained some stuff. Right here. Okay, I've kind of, as you said, I've experienced that roller coaster. I've been on the ups and downs. So okay, that's not all it's cracked up to be. And I'm I'm searching right when friends or you know clients of mine or even right my coaches like what makes you happy? And I sit there and scratch my head. I don't know, right? Because I go through this checks and balance of what's appropriate to say and what's not appropriate to say, and all I've come up with 
is I really love to read, right? I love to sit somewhere quiet and love to just, just read and being given permission. Like that's okay. It doesn't have to be like, I don't have to love skydiving or right. Fancy watches or $400 dinners. Reading can be an enjoyable activity as well. Absolutely. And one of the biggest components to happiness, I think really is just the willingness to give ourselves permission to just let it be. You know, one of the problems that I see a lot of people, and I've experienced this myself, especially when I was in my marriage, uh, that we try to force things too much instead of just allowing it to just be whatever it needs to be in that moment. You know, I, with happiness in particular, I like to talk to my clients about it being more of an experience than an emotion. I think, of course, it's, a, it's also an emotion. But in happiness, you know, we, have, we tend to describe moments much less than we describe the actual, the actual emotion itself. So I'm happy when I'm playing with my daughter. I'm happy when I have a clean home. I'm happy when I see my clients thriving. You know, so when we focus on what's the experience of happiness versus how do we describe the emotion of it, it's, it's a lot easier to start defining, well, this is what it is for me, right? And I, I think that we need to focus on things like that a lot more. Yes, absolutely. I, I love that. And Kelly, it's right. We I, I asked this question before we hopped on on the recording, so I'd love to re-ask it. Right. It's very rare that I get to speak to a therapist who's also a coach, right? Because okay. that's one of the things I get a lot is like, what what qualifications do you have to be right a coach, a consultant, a mentor, whatever. Life experience, right? A, a bunch okay. of books and certifications on a sheet of paper, but you actually have right a, a thriving therapy practice. Mm-hmm. and a thriving coaching practice, what would you say the similarities and the differences are? Sure. So first, I'll, I'll just, I, I guess I'll run through my qualifications. So I have my bachelor's and master's degree in social work, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I've been um, in the therapy field for 11 years now. Uh, I've been in private practice as a therapist for the last five and a half years, and now moving into the coaching world. Um, so the biggest difference between therapy and coaching is that therapy is process oriented and comes along with a mental health diagnosis. And that's, that's important to note because most therapy clients will come to, to their therapist, whoever they choose to identify and, and say, you know, either I know I don't feel good, but I don't know why, or I know why I don't feel good and I don't know what to do about it. And there's, there's a real lacking in skill sets for how to cope and um, be able to, to move through understanding why a problem exists in the first place. Versus coaching is action-oriented and does not come with a mental health diagnosis. And that's, that's important to note because uh, really anybody can be a coach. You know, they don't have to be a trained therapist. And trained therapists are the only ones who can diagnose. So a coach can be really these just very important people in our lives who are able to give us incredible advice, but help us understand what the problem is, why it's a problem, and then create a a very um, detailed action plan for how to resolve that issue or for how to cope with the issue if it can't be resolved. Absolutely. I love that because right when, when I look at my business, my practice, and kind of the evolution I went through. Mm-hmm. I've always looked at it that right, I, I suppose I, I feel comfortable saying I would have the intellect if I want to go back to college and, and get masters and go through that system that I could probably figure that out. Sure. There's a certain freedom to not having 
some sort of three letter you know, denotation after my name. Because if I, I laughingly say, I can sit in front of a client that I've earned trust and respect with and say, look, I love you to death, but you're being an asshole. I think as a, as a therapist, as, right, as, as someone that has a little more credentials behind them, that's probably frowned upon in some capacity. A little where, bit. <laughs> right, where I, I can say it again with love and a smile on my face and it, it's received in the right way. Mm-hmm. Not from this hierarchical, I'm better than. It's just, look, have you considered that you're actually the one that's wrong? Like, would being a jerk. Right, right. And so it's it's refreshing to hear both sides from where you stand or sit, right, with the things that you've been through. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and there's definitely moments as a therapist where, where I can do things like that with a client, but there's, there's a very clear difference in how to do it as a therapist versus how to do it as a coach. There, there's more freedoms as a coach to be able to kind of move people through a very specific kind of process. So I'm also curious, Kelly, with therapy and coaching and again, just how I view the world, talk about forgiveness. Right, because you have this powerful experience, which I'm thankful you went. It sounds funny, but I'm thankful you went through it because you can share that brilliance with so many people. And I get the chance to speak to you much in part because you went through that. But how does, right, if you look at the Kelly prior to five and a half years ago to the Kelly that sits in front of us now, how does forgiveness look to you? How does, is there a relationship even cordially with your ex? Is there, Right now. How, how does all that look, right? Because it's such an emotionally charged situation. You deal with so much weight and trauma, I'd have to imagine, from that. And, right, but you're, you're five years after that. Mm-hmm. So forgiveness, I think, is something that needs to evolve. And we also need, again, as I said before, with permission about happiness, to let it look whatever way it needs to look. The same holds true for forgiveness, that we need to give ourselves permission that it's okay for forgiveness to evolve and to, to change shape and form and put it in different kind of containers over time. So when I first got divorced, I was very angry. <laughs> I was not a happy person. And it's, you know, at the end of my marriage was, like I had said earlier, it was explosive. Um, the final incident that made me make the decision or got me to, to that point of saying, okay, it's time to go. Um, was that he was intoxicated one night and flew into a rage over something small and insignificant uh, and took a butcher knife out of our kitchen knife block and ended up essentially holding me hostage for about two hours. He walked around the house with it, threatening to harm himself first and then very quickly switching to threatening to harm me. Uh, He threw objects at me while I was holding our daughter during that incident. And it was... That was the night that I truly thought that if he wanted to, he could kill me. Uh, At the end of that incident, he threw punches in the air next to my head uh, and told me that I deserved to be beaten. And it was, I had never experienced anything like that before. You know, growing up, I had seen my parents argue, but nothing to that degree or extent. You know, my, my dad is a great guy and never laid a hand on my mom. Um, they have, they actually just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. So they have a long history of success in their marriage, not without its trials and tribulations like any relationship, uh, but they've, they've made it. Uh, so this was totally foreign to me. So I planned for six weeks 
and then took off with my daughter while he was at work one night. And I hid for three days with a family member. And then the following Monday morning, because I hid over a weekend, uh, I was in my divorce attorney's office starting, starting the process. So my entire divorce took six months, which in the grand scheme of things, when you look at a, a very acrimonious divorce, which mine was, um, that is fast. You know, a really contentious divorces can tend to take 12 to 24 months, if not longer at times. Um, so six months was pretty lucky for me to, to have it go that quickly. Um, but I was first devastated that my marriage had failed. And I walked away from it feeling like a failure, but needed to do the work around really understanding what it is to take ownership of something and then be accountable to it. And one of the biggest problems that I had had during my marriage that I needed to work on afterwards was that I was taking ownership of issues that just didn't belong to me. I was trying to do the work that he needed to do for him. And that's, that's a setup for failure every time. So, uh, so that was part of me working my way towards forgiveness of really understanding I needed to forgive myself for what I did not do before I could forgive him. So when I first left, I was devastated that my marriage had failed, like I said, and then just angry that somebody could have the, the audacity to treat me in that way and to expose my child to that kind of, kind of disruption in her life. Uh, and working through that anger was necessary because like if we look at the grief process, right, the five stages of grief are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. And I had to be angry in order to, to grieve the loss of everything that this was in a healthy way. Uh, but it, it's it's actually kind of funny in the process of, of really feeling like okay I'm I'm healing well. I actually worked with a coach who who said something to me about forgiveness that I I've never forgotten, uh, and she framed out forgiveness in a a very different kind of way. So often we look at forgiveness as something that we literally give to somebody, right? Like we we say to that person, okay, I, I get it, I understand, I let you off the hook. Right. Mm -hmm. What this woman framed out to me was that forgiveness, instead of being for somebody else that we offer to someone, why not just offer it to ourselves? And that forgiveness from that perspective really can come in the form of looking at the other person who's caused harm to us and saying, I'm not going to allow you access to me anymore because you're not allowed to cause this kind of harm to me anymore. Right. So here we start a really great conversation around what are boundaries and what does that look like? You know, we can start a conversation around self-love and what does it mean to prioritize ourselves? When she framed forgiveness to me in a way that was really let me give it to myself, that was it was the first time I'd ever heard that. And ever since then, that's how I've been trying to approach forgiveness just in my own life. And it's created some really incredible conversations with clients as well. That's so beautiful. And so it's such a, an impactful way for us to view really what forgiveness means. Mm -hmm. But during, during this whole evolution of understanding self and understanding forgiveness and putting it in a different package, when was the unapology project created, right? Cause that's, 
that to me is, is I don't say your baby, right? You, you're again, multifaceted, but yeah. I'm, I'm curious about what it is, where it came from, what we can get out of it, because that's such a brilliant name, <laughs> right? And like <laughs> so much of what you're sharing right now has to tie into that because it, it all makes sense together. Absolutely. So it, it was born um, on a, one night after I put my daughter to bed, I was sitting in the living room of my previous home thinking to myself, what am I doing? Right? Like I had been going through these motions of building my, my therapy practice. It was thriving and successful and everything seemed great at a, at a surface level, uh, but I was still unhappy. And so I was looking at the landscape of my life and saying, like, what reason do I have to be unhappy? My business is great. My child is healthy and thriving. She's got a good relationship with her dad. You know, he and I were learning how to, to co-parent successfully without being jerks to each other. And my family relationships were great. I had awesome friends, but I was still unhappy. So in looking at that and trying to answer but why? What, I, what dawned on me was that I was trying to live life according to the terms that everybody else had laid out for me. And this is the thing that, that I think most of us get caught up in without even realizing it, right? They, as children, you know, our parents start looking at us and saying, okay, this is what I expect of you. Here's the difference between right and wrong. Be a good person. Don't be a jerk to people. You know, hold doors open for the elderly all of the typical lessons that we're taught. And that's how we start learning how to become humans and and just kind people. We evolve as adults, but we need to also start figuring out, okay, well, out of the terms that my parents gave me as a kid, now what do I want to hang on to as an adult versus what do I want to evolve and make my own, right? Uh, And... I had never done that. I never looked at, well, but what do I want? What are my terms for life? What does make me happy? And so out of that, the Unapology Project came about because I realized we have to stop apologizing for not being able to live up to other people's terms as adults and start being okay with just living up to our own terms. Well, and, and I love the fact, right, you coin it that you're starting to live your, your, not starting to, that you encourage or teach women how to live their fuck yes life, right? Yeah. We're, we're allowed to, to cuss on this show. It's, it's completely fine. So Fantastic. Not, not to pull it out of me that way, but I wanted you to know that, you know, the, as someone's listening, they're certainly familiar with my vulgarity from time to time. So when I saw the notes, I'm like, man, that is such a powerful thing. Right to even no matter how you view curse words, like that just cuts through all the noise of the marketplace. That yeah. eliminates all the stuff. It's like, man, what what does the fuck yes life look like? Right? What how do you without giving away the secret sauce, right? Because that's part of this, but like how do you bring people into that? And then what are the ways that they can get a hold of you? Because I know inevitably as people are hearing this, they're like, I want to live a fuck yes life. Like <laughs> I want more, I want some of that. Let's talk about what that looks like and how people can experience it and how you help facilitate that because you have some exciting things coming out for 2020. Sure. So, you know, I'm in the process now of actually developing my own method um, that I'm going to be calling the unapology method. Uh, And really what it what it means to or first, I should say where where the idea of a fuck yes life came from was from my friend Beth. 
you know, when I met this woman, she was just a light. She's just a great human being. And she was talking about some of her own history as I was getting to know her and talked about this experience of deciding that if it's not a fuck yes, then it's a fuck no. And I, I love that the idea of throwing a swear word in there because I really believe that expletives help us emphasize what we need the most. Uh, so living a fuck yes life means that this is everything that I am most passionate about. And these are my non-negotiable terms for life. That if I'm not living up to A, B, and C, then it's a fuck no. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, so walking my clients through that process, really the first part uh, of being able to unpack that is just looking at what are the stories that they've been told by other people about them and are they still trying to live up to those terms and are those terms really meant for them or do they need to redefine what that looks like? So in the process of that, we look at confirmation bias, we look at mindset, we look at self-talk. Right. And being able to to really understand what those things are is the starting point of, of deciding and then defining what does a fuck yes life look like for them? Because this is this is individual. Right. And people need to be able to define these terms for themselves so that they have control over what that looks like. And then, Kelly, as we look at that, right, you have the unapology project dot com. Right, it is certainly somewhere where someone can begin to go down the rabbit hole that is all the brilliance information that you share. Yes, we also have uh, an ebook coming out. You have some things. Right? I'm, a, I'm curious. I'm a marketing guy as well. I like to know what what other people are working on because there's so much. Right, there's so much there, and I get the impression from you that the ebook isn't some sort of like seven page you can download and throw it away type of deal. <laughs> I think I think there's something here. So talk to me about the ebook. What's that look like? Yeah, so the ebook is going to be called Vision. It's going to be coming out, I'm, if I can get it the way that I want it, it's going to be coming out towards the, the middle or end of January. Um, and then over the course of 2020, what I'm actually going to be doing is developing digital courses to go along with each chapter of the book that people either can buy as a bundle or separately, depending on which, which chapter speaks the most to them. Um, and within Vision, it's comprehensive. Like there's a lot of information in this book. It's uh, roughly about 50 pages long. Uh, there are journal exercises in it. There's meditation exercises in it. And there is a ton of, of information from a very psychological standpoint of, you know, how do we define what certain skill sets look like? What are, what is the definition of certain concepts like confirmation bias. You know, we need to define that before we can figure out what to do with it. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of that information is in there. And then really some very, I think, exciting and actionable exercises to start putting these concepts into play. Well, the, the good news is, as you are listening to this right now, number one, all this information from Kelly is going to be in the show notes. You can press pause. You can go down. There's going to be a hyperlink. You can click on our website. I'm going to guess with how the cadence of our episodes go. This will probably launch mid to end of January. So this should all be up and live and, and running. So right, we're recording this. Oddly enough, Kelly's so kind as to record this with me December 24th, right, right before Christmas. But I want you to know that you can take action right now because right from my standpoint, I've said it over and over again, I believe that all of us need a map, right? You need mentorship, accountability, and a plan. And as you've gotten into the new year, you probably have some sort of at least hypothetical plan of, I know where I want to get to, right? I, you might have spoken it out loud to your wife, your 
your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you might have pronounced it or announced it on social media. We still need that mentorship component. And what Kelly's essentially offering is a step-by-step mentorship in a digital delivery platform. And then you still have a few select slots, right? If maybe, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, I see you nodding your head, but like yeah. if someone was a right fit and felt called and compelled, they could still take a step closer and potentially work with you in a in a more intimate capacity, right? It is a one-on-one client. Absolutely. There's actually a form on my website, uh, www.theunapologyproject.com, where you can fill it out and I will get in touch with you uh, and we can schedule a phone call to make sure that we're a good fit for each other. And if we are, then we move forward with establishing a relationship. Well, and I, I love this and I love this because I'm going to, I guess, throw a little curveball in our conversation. Not really, right? Because we're both own businesses. What I find to be fascinating, my my business started with serving as many people one-to-one as possible. And while it was rewarding, it was also exhausting, right? Like, and you as a therapist plus a coaching business and some of the intimate details you deal with, a leverage model has to be a little tough to come across, right? Where you, the one-to-many part is pretty difficult. Yeah. And especially obviously on the therapy side that I would almost assume can't happen. Yeah. But in the coaching world, it could. But to see you, again, when a guest kind of gets to the point of like, all right, I have to impact more people. I have to help more people. I have to share this brilliance with more than just the people that reach out. How can I do that in a scalable way, in an affordable way? Not what, as you're listening, the part you might not know is how freaking difficult it is to create quality products that cut through the noise in the marketplace and actually make an impact. And then right for someone that has a bunch of digital products and then to get you as you're listening to actually complete something, right? Like, <laughs> Statistically, it's about 25% of people that will download something, actually use it, right? I can check and see who, who watches every video, who makes it all the way to the finish. And then also, are they following up after, you know, three months and six months? Did you implement it or did you just learn it? And you're, you're experiencing that. It sounds like that part of growth, right? Which makes sense of that five to six year mark. Yeah. Like, like, man, there's got to be more to this, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and it, with, the, with the book and with the, the digital courses that, like I said, that I'll be coming out with over the course of, of the, the next year, you know, there's, there's so many people that I feel like I can impact. And it, like you said, to use your words, cut through the noise that's, that's in the coaching industry right now that I I've personally, as a therapist, have found frustrating that we make things too complicated and let's just keep it simple, right? It's the, the change that all of us are looking for in our lives. It's simple. It becomes challenging, right? So it's simple, not easy, but it, it becomes the not easy part because of the emotions that we invest into staying the same, right? So all of the information that I'm putting into, into my ebook is really so that we can start to just reduce how we invest into staying the same and invest more into changing and, and moving towards this is the thing that will be the most fulfilling for me. Absolutely. Now, that's so, so brilliant. And I, I'll even, and I'll lean into this more, Kelly, not only that we want to cut through the noise and that we, you know, we feel pulled to it. Like I look at it at some point, it's our responsibility to, right? Absolutely. It, there's this thing of, oh God, I don't want to be sold on the phone or I don't want to be sold. I don't want to be oversold. I'm going to, I'm going to say that's bullshit. Like if you're consuming our content, if you're on the edge, you're on the cusp, it's because something hasn't been an alignment in your life. You see this glimmer of hope that you think somebody might have the next answer, right? The next key to the lock on the door. That's 
right? The next step of your life. And it becomes our responsibility at some point to help you take that next step. That doesn't require high pressure sales. It doesn't require slimy marketing messages. That doesn't require, you know, a bunch of false claims, but it does sometimes require, right? That pat on the backside and say like, no, come on. Like you deserve this for yourself. You, mm-hmm. you because especially, I don't know about you, Kelly, but I'm not exactly cold calling people, right? I'm not begging them to work. It's like, here's the, here's what we do. Here's how it works. And we get to that point and it's right. How do we get people to take that step? How do we honor our commitment to them more so than just putting out high quality information, but also how do we show them that they need this, right? Because it's, it's a responsibility. Absolutely. And I, I think that we do that through talking to people about how they understand what kind of pain they're in. Right. Tony Robbins said that you know, people change when the amount of pain they're in outweighs their desire to remain the same. And I, I love that quote because it, it, it's so true that once we hit that wall of, I just can't do this anymore, but I don't know how to pivot, that's when, that's when people really need to be reaching out and saying, okay, I know I need to pivot, but I don't know how. Can you please show me? And will you please go with me, right? One of my mentors uh, said that to me once and I was like, oh my God, why didn't they teach me this in grad school? Because it's so true, right? Of that, you know, people just want permission to be able to live life on their terms in a fulfilling way. And they want to know that they're going to be connected along the way. So we as coaches need to be approaching our clients and saying, here, I, I, I know how. I, I've done this before. Let me hold up the light so you can see through the dark. And I'm going to point you that way, right? Mm-hmm. And I'll come with you, right? You don't have to walk this path alone. And I'm going to give you the good swift kick in the ass when you need it. And I'm going to be your accountability buddy. And we're going to get this done. And, you know, as, as somebody who's been working with people for the last 11 years on the therapy end of things, and now on the coaching end of things, when people are connected in meaningful ways, they heal, right? We are already our own best experts. We just need to be reminded of that. Oh, I, I love that. That's, that's one of those, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get that quote framed and hang it up in the office, right? That's, <laughs> it's so brilliant because I, I believe the same thing. And it's so interesting, right? In the, I don't even know what space you'd call it anymore, but there's this, there's been this movement of the alpha male coach. Like this is the way you should live your life and you got to live it the exact way that I tell you to live it or you're going to fail. I think there's so many things not appropriate about that because I look at, we all know what is right and wrong. I believe inherently human beings are good, not bad. My, my belief system. And I believe that we have the answers inside of us. We just have to be given permission. And I, I, my, my analogy is right. We have a, we're in a dark room together. I have my flashlight in my pocket. I can t- pull it out and turn it on anytime I want to, but I can't give you my flashlight. You got to crawl around on the floor and find yours. Then when you find it, you can shine it right at the door and you're off and running. Exactly. But that dark room is one that you've actually created. I didn't create your dark room for you. So I don't know exactly. I have all the tools to help you out of your dark room, but you created the dark room. So my tools, right? There's not a, there's, there's certainly some things that are standard, right? Like you were saying, I call them the optimized date, right? Meditation and journaling and green smoothies and sweating and gratitude and notes of appreciation, right? There's just some things that I think help could benefit every person if they did them on a daily basis. But those are like this drop in the bucket of what it takes to walk through 
in my opinion, right? Some of those old repressed emotional traumas and things that you weren't taught at an early developmental age, right? I'm a big believer in spiral dynamics and the work of back and graves and how that looks in interpersonal communication relationships. And now it's like, now there's science behind all this, right? There's the nerdy stuff where it's like, oh, you, right? Here's, here's some things he, what went on when you were seven to nine, right? Like, I didn't know you then, but there's something that you might want to tweak back then. It's a powerful place to be in and it's exciting to see the transformation, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, but we, we need to have, again, like I said before, that accountability and that comes in the form of coaching, you know, to really hold people accountable to the change they say they want and to keep them consistently moving forward on that path. But being able to, part of, part of that really needs to look like asking people to consistently sit with the pain of what their past has created. And I love the analogy that you presented about the dark room because it's so true that when we, when we look around, you know, there's things that we've done in our own lives, whether it's like with me and staying in a marriage that I shouldn't have been in in the first place, uh, I created that because I agreed to it, right? I signed on and understanding how to exit from that, I had to be accountable. That was pain that I had to look directly in the eye of and say, okay, you're, we're here, now what, right? And people fear that. People don't want to look at pain because we haven't been taught how to tolerate it. You know, so that's where coaching and therapy, they both come into play. It looks different in each process, but they both, meet, they both really help all of us be able to attend to that. Absolutely. Like, so I want to respect your time, especially on, on Christmas Eve. I could sit here and, and this could be a four hour conversation for me very easily, right? It's fascinating because we think the same way and we, you have this clinical setting that I'm fascinated by. So I look forward to what I'm going to say is going to be interview part two at some point in the future. I hope I if that. I get, if I get the privilege and honor to actually do so, I'm going to project outwardly that I hope that it comes true because right to see this consistent growth and, and evolution and the impact you're able to make, not only that you've been doing it inside the right the therapy world, but also inside the coaching and then as your digital products launch, I just I couldn't be more appreciative to get to have spent this time getting to know you and your process and what makes you who you are. Thank you, Kelly. Sincerely, thank you so much. Absolutely. I'm grateful to have been able to share the time.